0: Podcast. In this episode, we're delighted to present a Distinguished Visitor Lecture by Dr. Scott Davidoff from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Recorded on Wednesday 17th of July 2019, this lecture focuses on how prototyping techniques can be adapted to make the most of today's emerging technologies, such as virtual reality, augmented reality and data science and to become a force multiplier for research. Scott leads the design and development of the user interfaces used to command all NASA JPL spacecraft. He also manages the Jet Propulsion Laboratory's data visualization program and leads NASA's infusion of human-centered design into space mission engineering. We hope you enjoy this presentation.
1: Good good afternoon,
2: everybody. I wasn't sure what everyone's background was going to be, and so I just prepared a little a couple of slides about the kind of training that I've received uh, just to fill everybody in. So, uh, my uh, my PhD is in human computer interaction. I think you have a computer human interaction uh, department here? Discipline. Discipline, thank you. I'm sure they're related in some way. Um, and I, I see. Uh, human-computer interaction as the intersection of of these three disciplines, though certainly not exclusive, actually. I think there are many others that could be included. Um, And I'm going to focus today on the design side of the formula. And in particular, I wanted to talk about the art and science of how to make things. And um, I think almost every definition of design I've ever seen left me uh, feeling as though something was missing. So I, So this will also do that. But let me just say what I imagine about the, the parts of design that I find most interesting are, first, that it believes in this principle of observing real people doing real work. And perhaps it's not even always work. You could maybe call it tasks. But I've chosen this this particular image here, because you can see this beautifully architected path that the uh, construction company provided, and then people decided that they were going to make a shortcut of their own. And so I, one of the things that I think design is often about is actually finding the ways that people behave that are that don't conform to perhaps the orthographic descriptions that people self-describe when they characterize their own experience. So it's really about observing People doing work. Uh, second, it's about getting to good ideas by finding ways to make uh, failure lower cost. Uh, and I, yeah, this paper, Airplane, is a kind of a tribute to the work I do at the Jet Propulsion Lab. Um, but fundamentally, it's about failing jiggly, right? Finding ways that the costs are able to be made lower. And last, it's about actually measuring the efficacy as much as that's possible for any given intervention that you provide. So I feel like these are the kind of guiding principles that I'd like to fold into the work that I'll share with you today. Uh, here's a, the, the panorama um, propaganda shot of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, where I work. Uh, and uh, I get to take the kinds of things that I'm describing today uh, about how to make things and try to bring them into the domain of space robots, uh, and really supporting the science and engineering of understanding our universe, looking for life, and uh, exploring other worlds. Uh, and the context in which a lot of this work occurs is kind of magnificently complex. Um, so here, at mission control at, at the Jet Propulsion Lab is one of the 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 loci of of really where the work happens. Um, And one of the reasons that I wanted to come to NASA was because of the 7120. Uh, NASA has many similarly charmingly named documents. The 7120 describes the project life cycle. And this is how a space mission comes into being from concept development to uh, implementation. And what you'll see here is it's it's quite linear. So there's not really a lot of opportunity for change. And in fact, in a space mission, once it's turned into a proper NASA mission, you're generally looking at about basically four years before almost anything uh, that involves software or people uh, is is quite literally tested or analyzed. And so it seemed to me that if you spent that much time making things, in all likelihood, it's gonna be way too late to actually make any changes by the time you got to testing. And so a lot of my work has been trying to fold in ways to make failure cheaper, to test things earlier, and to observe real work in the context of space missions. And so one of the things I wanted to share with you today is an observation that I think, in many of these emerging contexts, so for example, certainly space exploration, but fundamentally technical contexts, uh, the design tools that have evolved I think can serve many good purposes but I also think that there are gaps in the design toolkit. So I want to observe those designs and I want to talk about how we can try to uh, introduce new prototyping and sketching techniques. So I think one of my favorite set of techniques is you know what I'll describe using Bill Buxton's language as sketching but it's this ideative, lightweight way to go through many, many designs. So really, sketching and prototyping is, I would say, one of the other main tools. Now, um, basing this on Bill Buxton's, one of the ways that he describes design's goal is getting the design right and then making the right design. Sketching and prototyping. So I think I'll just try to frame are design tools in this way, that I think sketching supports this work early on in the process. It produ- allows you to be profound and exploratory, produce disposable concepts, uh, deal with uncertainty. And then the way he defines it, and I think certainly for the well-defined desktop world, uh, then, you, then once you converge on ideas, you're going to start to prototype, and you're, you're, you're going to experiment less in your prototyping. And you're really more than exploring, you're refining. Um, and I don't mean to describe the, the either sketching or prototyping in such a linear way. I think sketches themselves can actually be quite complex. And prototypes don't have to just be software, like the one that I showed. You can certainly prototype with lots of ideas on paper. You can even do it on video. And I'll show some of that in a um, and But I think these concepts of sketching and prototyping actually serve uh, wonderfully to frame many of the things that design can do and for which design methods have learned to interpret in the context of designing for a desktop, right? When we're building software for the web. But I think what happens when you start to look at new applications of computer science? So in data visualization... I'm finding as part of my research and practice that the scientists and engineers that I work with just often jump right over to prototyping. And it really, uh, um, it, it removes the ability to experiment in a really tangible way. And I'm wondering why that is. And I'm going to introduce methods that I have been practicing and that I have been elaborating into a series of research papers to help share how I think we can bring some of these principles into, the, into data visualization. So immersive reality is another one of the places where I think our design tools just don't seem to work very well. And I'm imagining, at least to me, this is going to be a really important place for us to be working. And I think it's going to be really good for us to have uh, just exceptional tools to allow us to explore cheaply. Another one of the contexts, uh, mission operations. How does one do this? Well, what I'd like to do is go through some examples of how I've adapted uh, sketching and prototyping into each of these contexts. Let's start with data visualization. So one of the things that, why, why do data visualization? Researchers and practitioners often skip prototyping and I say that inclusively I know myself I often do this as well so really it's I think one of the reasons is while you might prototype or sketch and be able to draw screens and buttons and they're very common uh, how does one sketch data and I think that's really the question that you need to consider when you're trying to imagine what your visualization ought to be Because sketching and prototyping with real data are so complicated, this is actually how many scientists and engineers end up looking at their data. They program. And programming, even with incredible advances in libraries and toolkits to make it faster, is still profoundly slower than one can draw with their hands. So in effect, what I'm trying to do is find ways to make failure cheaper and exploration easier when you're working with real data. So I think in, in visualization practice, I have so often seen people uh, working with sketching. Uh, here is just a quick sketch uh, that I found that has looks like some sliders and uh, a line plot. Um, and surely this represents some good thinking work for the designer. But one of the things that I think is important and that I have to acknowledge that I think probably drives people uh, away from thinking about prototyping is this kind of sketch trivializes the data. In other words, I think it's independent of whatever the data would actually say. And the data themselves cannot inform the decisions that you'd make. You're not going to look at that chart and say, oh, stocks are going up. I should do something. Right. It's, it's very uh, conceptual. And so I think what I want to do is bring in this idea of, again, of observing how uh, real people do real work to understand whether you can sketch or, or prototype with, with real data. Um, and so I'll walk through a couple of examples. Uh, the first, uh, quickly, will just, uh, I think, illustrate uh, some of the work that I've done. Uh, and I'll talk about smoke plume data uh, from the MISER instrument. It is a uh, spectral uh, radiometer on the Terra satellite, and it's able to sense uh, smoke plumes from space. Um, So first question is, can you, let me just walk you through a simple example of a kind of prototype that I have put together, and then we'll break it down. So here's just an example of uh, one of the concepts that my team was working on for looking at smoke plume data with a scientist. And we would give the scientist the task, select, uh, for example, all of the data points in Australia. Totally not pandering to Australia here. That was actually the example that we used in the test. Uh, so you can see the, the scientist uh, selects a particular region, uh, selects Australia, and then the data set updates. So what do I think is maybe interesting and different about this prototype? Well, it's principally this key central region where what you're really looking at is the actual data themselves. So one of the things that one would need to do if you were going to try to prototype a particular concept with visualization is a priori, go get real data. So already we're talking something that requires a little bit of coding and uh, start to Understand the ways in which your user test it might get represented and bring all of them. And so in this particular case where we were working with Miser data and we realized that we were going to be working around the concept of the controls surrounding two-dimensional plots, the first thing to do is to print every pairwise combination. Certainly not a small undertaking. So by doing this, you're slowing down what might have been uh, a slightly more prolific prototyping effect, but I think what you're going to see is you're actually able to interact with scientists about their data, and their data can now join the conversation, and when the data drive the conversation, then you're going to make different observations, understand priorities and values of your users in a way that you might not have had the data not been present. In preparing, it works just like every other paper prototype that you have. Um, So let's walk through uh, another example here, uh, just really quickly, where, you know, here you would take one of the graphs and let's plot one of these particular elements. So the the designer creates these uh, menus by gluing, sticking together two post-it notes. They're going to select the plume height and map it against radiative power. Now they're going to, uh, so they're just updated, just like any other screen would, and so you just use these data points, these graphs, as states of the user interface. So I think one of the questions you might ask is, well, what happens with more sophisticated interactions? How might you do something like Zoom? Well, you have to make certain kinds of simplifications that suggest to people what the interactions might be. And then um, you're able to learn things through having applied those simplifications, though, of course, you're giving up learning some things about the actual Zoom interaction. So, for example, we add these paper frame edges, and just say, you know, hey, put the the wrap the frame around Africa, around Southern Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, and um, what you're finding is it it will give people a convincing illusion. I think I, but you can see here that the, the you know basically they're zoomed in just on the African uh, continent. So I think what's interesting is. When you are really sketching here using real data, you actually get a convincing enough illusion to users that it actually reflects their real work. So let me show you a good example of this,
1: uh, interacting with a scientist. from mm-hmm. So the next task is to color these, to add color to the interface based on biome. Ah, OK. Yeah. So if I'm doing something
3: with color, I imagine I'm going to click here, but I don't know what happens after that. Okay, so a menu has appeared on a sticky note that says biome, radiated power, and off." So, since we're doing this by biome, I would then click on biome. Excellent. So now I am seeing a map of the same plumes. We will ignore Saudi Arabia for the time being. <laughs> um,
2: Perhaps we'll modify. It's just <laughs> What I love about this example is, uh, by interacting with the scientists, they'll have told you um, we consider Saudi Arabia to actually be uh, in the continent of Africa, and their data is there within this particular range. So I think it's it's very interesting to um, to be able to see how the scientists responded, and also when you're working with a, you know having a designer working with scientists to actually be able to uh, update the prototype in real time. So. I think what's most interesting about this is that designers can understand how the data become meaningful to the users and drive designs, use that to to actually create features. So I'll show you another example of how through using this particular prototyping technique and how how it has real data, we can actually show the scientist something about their own data that they have not seen.
3: Uh, there are, is much more rainforest than there are fires in the rainforest. So what I'm seeing is that, interestingly, the fires in the rainforest biome seem to cluster around the edge of the savanna. Mm. Oh. So that makes me wonder if if fires in rainforests in Africa are, are originating in the savanna and then moving into the rainforest. Oh. So that's an interesting question that this wow. brings up. Wow.
2: So when you, when you actually bring data into the analysis, you're going to see really fundamentally different interactions than you might have seen if there was just a sketch. So while as material, it might take you as the design team a little bit longer to uh, be able to print out the actual visualizations that you're going to need, um, I think what you'll find is that the information that you get is exponentially more valuable because it's going to reflect the real eccentricities of the data set and the use cases that are often quite hard to articulate. And I think what's really interesting is because it uncovered through this type of interaction, you end up uncovering high impact opportunities to influence how the different science teams actually conduct their analyses. So... um, I'll show you another example, and this is going to be from uh, some of our uh, honored NASA guests. Uh, We have uh, Dr. David Flannery in the house, uh, member of the Pixel team. Pixel is an instrument for Mars 2020. And um, uh, also, just to share in the house here, is Peter Nemer, who is a visualization programmer, who is going to be working on this project with us. Um, So uh, let me show you some stories of how uh, we worked with the Pixel team, uh, which is this uh, Mars 2020 x-ray spectrometer, uh, uh, as a way for them to understand whether or not there is evidence of uh, past life on Mars. Um, so as an x-ray spectrometer, the instrument returns spectra, which are um, effectively each peak in a graph like this would represent an experiment at one particular location. And each, uh, well, excuse me, the entire graph represents an experiment at one location. And each peak represents uh, the abundance of a particular element. And uh, pixels unique and interesting because it's capable of taking thousands of spectra, which then becomes an analysis challenge for scientists who really haven't in the past traditionally tried to aggregate so many thousands of spectra. And in fact, as we worked with the scientific team, we actually learned quite a bit that I thought was very interesting about how they often interrogate a data set. And one of the strongest uh, uh, interaction patterns that they follow is by using color and mapping it to elemental intensity. So you can see on left uh, the area in which the experiment was done in the visible light. And then what they'll do is map uh, an element to a particular color, and they'll use the intensity of the color channel. So the intensity of yellow represents the amount of silicon in that particular space. Um, And then they will use an approach of small multiples. So there'll be uh, a number of elements all uh, in a tight array where what becomes visible are the differences between them. Um, But one of the things that's interesting is I think this serves elemental chemistry in a way that actually can be quite effective. But what's most interesting, I think, to I think many of the Pixel Science team members are that uh, it's not just elements and their abundance and location, but minerals and their coabundance and co-location. So these become much more difficult for the science team to use color to represent. And you can see in a graph like the one on the right where they have... Uh, actually uh, red the red channel mapped to iron, the green mapped to silicon and the blue to calcium, that they can see those places where those elements separate quite well. But where there's overlaps in elements, which is of course what you get in minerals, it becomes much more difficult to understand. And you can see with the additive color model that we have on computer displays, a good example of what happens that when you have uh, yellow and blue interacting and when you have red and uh, and blue interacting. um, And the more elements you start to add, the more highly uh, interactive this becomes with human perception. And there are quite a few colors that the human brain can't distinguish effectively when you use this kind of color mixing uh, approach. And so we started to look at opportunities to work with the science team and introduce different ways to capture, element, uh, capture mineral distribution and abundance. Um, so one thing that I thought was very interesting here was, you'll see this is the, the data sketch that we put together where we printed out uh, element maps and accompanied it in a mixed fidelity prototyping setting. Where we actually have uh, some uh, interactive, uh, basically balsamic interactive prototypes, and what we found was that we, um, this idea of using color was a strong part of the conversation, and um, so what we what we started to do was mix this idea of bringing a data-driven prototype and co-design and it's really one of the most important things to do because when you are using data in your prototype, um, you're going to run out of uh, options as soon as you run out of the data that you prepared, and you, you probably aren't going to prepare infinite numbers of amounts of paper screens for all the possible combinations. And so, at a certain point, you make a departure from uh, your paper uh, data sketch into code design or other kinds of media. And so, let me show you some examples of. Uh, walking scientists through some of the technical uh, concepts that we had been developing, and then uh, see how those responses in turn led to generating uh, really interesting ideas that I think helped uh, evolve the, the practice for, for doing analysis of this kind of data. And at the same time, um, the ways in which we continually got Uh, ideas wrong and by co-designing with scientists they helped us understand and Um, so what i did
1: was i used that color tool that i've been showing you Mm -hmm. and i found the halfway mixing point between these two elements Mm -hmm. and then i selected that out and then i've turned that black and white so this is just a black and white image of Mm. where the two elements are overlapping
0: oh Mm -hmm. good one
1: of the things we think is useful about that is that it's um especially when there are many elements like let's say you wanted to measure 3 mm-hmm. and the you know you mentioned like a silicate or a mm-hmm. calcium carbonate or something like something that has multiple elements in this way it isn't going to you don't have to deal with the color mixing problem
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, it's just you'll parametrically so- select the right combination of elements and then it mm-hmm. will generate this black and white correlation map right for you this was
2: an interaction uh, with one of the science team members where we were introducing this idea of actually parametric color selection and in fact you'll see in the next example a few moments later in the conversation uh, she helped deepen the idea where she had helped us realize that parametric color selection is probably best not just with a greater than or less than symbol but actually as a range of values
3: so when I choose a threshold um, I need a visualization to show me where that uh, where that range covered mm-hmm. on the on the image. Whether mm-hmm. I have too much, more than what mm-hmm. I have, or, or like I want to choose just so the area covered is the face I want to analyze. Mm-hmm.
1: So, if we, for example, um, if I have a slider,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and there's a feature here of some kind, and mm-hmm. I click, and it's um, very bright in the center and very dark on the outside. Mm-hmm. And I click on it, and it gives me a selection that's this big, mm-hmm. but this is too small. So I drag this slider up, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and it gives me a larger selection.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that what you were saying?
2: I think one of the really fascinating parts about this interaction is showing a scientist their data in a way that they hadn't thought about it, just feeds back and generates more ideas and you show them things about their data and they say that's great but what about this case because what's so amazing about the scientists in our community is they're the world's experts in these fields and so we're often basing our designs as their technical partners on a very narrow understanding of an immense discipline and that's admittedly some uh, a place where you can get your ideas wrong and that's another reason why it's really important to find Places where you can learn these mistakes and co-evolve your designs by showing them to the science team and asking for their input. I think I have one more video. No, okay. no. I, uh, in the ne- there's one more video where the scientist helps us to see uh, that it shouldn't just be a single dimensional slider, but a range slider. And uh, again, it's just those kinds of things don't happen unless you have real data and unless they really understand what they're looking at, and they take all their years of experience and bring it to bear on the data set. So uh, what I'll show now, just for a couple moments, is the, uh, the I guess, a, an early version of a, or maybe a, a kind of a six-month-in version of a prototype that we had built together, and, and disc- show you the, the features that we've now been able to implement So we'll focus on one particular element map. And what a scientist is able to do to find a mineral that is the intersection of magnesium, aluminum, and silicon uh, is to be able to effectively interactively create a function that defines the intersection, right, the conjunction of those three elements all above a certain threshold. And so what we were able to do was Make it so that a scientist could define a mineral of an arbitrary complexity with some whatever parameterization was available in a way that didn't rely on the un- the well understood foibles of human color perception, and there could be an arbitrary number of of elements in any one of these mineral identifications. So uh, another thing that we observed in participating with the scientists was that not uh, what was not just important was identifying where any mineral occurred, but identifying where they co-occur. And so um, we introduced the idea of a chord diagram here, where what we're doing is mapping the abundance of any given element to the radius of that element as represented as a node on the a bounding circle, mm-hmm. and the uh, R-squared value of their co-occurrence, uh, ge- uh, their geological and geometric co- co-occurrence, uh, as the width of the arcs that connect them. And I'll, I'll walk you through some of the interaction. So you can see here in this earlier version, we're using red and green to correlate with positive and negative, uh, to, to reflect positive and negative correlation, but we're showing the R-squared value allowing the scientists to say, yeah, make it a little more sensitive, a little less sensitive. Uh, this kind of interaction is something that we found uh, together with the um, with the intersection map allows a scientist to be able to identify exactly where certain minerals in certain concentration levels occur and where different elements co-occur. And then... Uh, If you put multiple or an arbitrary number of chord diagrams, they can compare the chemistry in the global set, which is shown on the bottom, to a local subset that they'll have made. Anyway, this is a work in progress. That is something that we'll be elaborating uh, in a partnership uh, over this next year. So it'll be exciting to continue to work on this. And uh, this tool will be used Uh, to analyze uh, the pixel data when it starts coming down from March 2020 uh, in uh, 2021. Okay, let's turn our attention to uh, immersive reality. And let's think about what are the design challenges there and how can we adapt our design methods and come up with uh, ways with workarounds on these really intense problems. Hey, no high five? Yeah. Okay, so um, I'll show an example of immersive reality for uh, this interesting robot. It is a dexterous manipulator robot uh, built by NASA um, uh, called uh, Robonaut 2. Robonaut 2 is uh, a really interesting robot with a design to be able to do maintenance on the International Space Station, as well as uh, stay fit. Anyway, as you can imagine, with this many degrees of freedom, it's a pretty complex input problem. So if you're going to specify that you want the robot to do a certain behavior, uh, my group's task was, well, come up with a way to make it not take a year to program something that would take a minute. And uh, that was just a very interesting set of challenges for us. One of the things that we thought might, the reason I bring this up in the context of immersive reality is because we thought if we had some kind of representation of the 3D world in which the robot was acting, that it might simplify the uh, command space. Of course, also simplify it in the sense that first make it massively more complicated (laughs) until we eventually simplify. it. So we started to elaborate this concept Um, which first started out, actually, as a first person, uh, an egocentric perspective, where the robot was mimicking the movements of a particular person. In other words, I'd reach my hand out, and the robot's hand would mimic it. And so a person would move their hand through three space, and then the robot would go and perform an equal and symmetrical behavior. Turns out this was not a great idea, and I'll show you how we started to figure that out. Okay, so what are the challenges when you're working in immersive reality? Well, there are many challenges, but the ones that I'll focus on today are that, first of all, the user interface is now no longer just a flat panel, but it is now a a three and, in fact, four-dimensional world because it has to exist within time. I started to elaborate this concept of coming up with this idea, that a design concept I call the magic window. But what we're going to do is use the real world to effectively prototype the, effect, the 3D effects of, of the virtual world. And so I'll show you how we started to elaborate this idea. Um, so what we imagined was, well, first, can we come up with a really simple analog and what I decided was a we could just look out the window behind my office uh, and look at this garbage can here and come up with an analog 3D task that would be easy for us to pretend it was a task for Robonaut. And what we're going to do is we're going to program some robot to come and move the tip over the garbage can. And what I just, so rather than having to create a 3D user interface or even a, a 2D user interface, as they sometimes are in a 3D space, I just stuck these uh, post-it notes on my window as the controls for this 3D world. And what you'll see we end up doing is, and then we use this pointer to uh, represent what was at the time a, a z-space display. Sure. It's basically a 3D stylus. Um, and, and we're gonna say, hey, here's, here's the mesh That is going to represent this trash can. I'm going to drag it onto this trash can over here. I'm going to tell the robot where this location is. And now I'm going to specify, hey, uh, uh, empty it, or or, I can't remember this, move it. Uh, Yeah, so this is move it, you're going to move it. And of course, if you move it, you have to then identify, oops, so I'll run through this again. Uh, If you move it, you have to identify an end location. And, um, and then it'll create this connection. And what you'll see at the top is a timeline that starts to represent a sequence of commands so that you can command a compound behavior by creating a series of simple atoms to represent specific individual behaviors. Um, so this was a... If you were to try and program something like this, it probably wouldn't be a trivial thing to do, but we're able to do something like this in quite literally... I mean, I'm going to say two hours, and, and then just you know, take multiple snapshots. So what are the benefits of doing something like this? Well, it just starts to give you a sense of the efficacy and value of this particular kind of commanding technique and having a flat user interface and being able to uh, point in ways that would be representative of a 3D space. What, what does it not give you? Well, a lot. I mean, let's be honest, Right. Uh, It works every time, right? The robot never makes a mistake. Um, It's not that hard to select exactly the right point. So there's things that it's not going to do. But for a couple of hours' work, it really shows you some things are actually not such good ideas. And it gives you faith in some ideas that are quite good. So in terms of the cost-benefit of trying to do work in this space, I try to advocate for saying spend a couple of hours to save yourself a couple of weeks. That seems like a good investment to me. Let's see, Uh, and another thing you can see is people walk through your prototype. We have a user over here walking through it. Um, And then remove the trash can, and it it empties the trash can. Uh, So anyway, I'll I'll try to jump through this so that we don't spend too much time on it. Uh, So I think it really, it produces very fast results of high-level concepts. Um, another idea that I'll show you, just as an example, uh, slightly different problem domain. Here, this was a as a demonstration and a design problem for rover path planning. And so, um, what we used is the Arroyo, which is next to JPL, as a proxy for Mars. And, uh, and we made this cardboard robot, and we said, uh, you know draw through space the path that you want the rover to follow and uh i'm just using the, this yellow as a simulation of the arc that a person would subtend. and then uh we had these series of plastic overlays that we laid down uh in front of the you can't see it because it's stuck to the top right now but they would basically just create a fake overlay as though the scene had updated and so We would know the trajectory roughly that they were going to draw. Did it feel fake? Definitely. But did it tell us the value? Actually, quite a lot. I think this is one of the ways in which you can take something that's really complicated and turn it into a really cheap way to explore. And I think that is really one of the key takeaways here. Think about what are the unknowns when you are looking to design in your space, and then think about using these kinds of techniques to see how they might create useful enough proxies. And I think the key here is useful enough, right? It's clearly not a perfect representation of this act, of the act that you're trying to command. But it's good enough to give you useful data. And I think that's, that's one of the key takeaways here, that you can get a lot farther than you think, with a lot less than you think. Um, Another one of the complications of working with a robot, like uh, Robonaut 2, or R2 as we call them, uh, is that not only are your commands happening in 3D space, but the actual action happens in 3D space. In other words, if it's going to try to pick something up, it's gonna actively have to grab and, and pick up a 3D object. So how did we simulate uh, a robot arm? Uh, so I'll show you the concept that we started to build. Uh, and we basically were really creating this palette of hand posts and then uh, trying to basically identify all the movements of the hand throughout three space and um, to be able to identify a particular range of motion, and and then to figure out ways that you'd want the hand to simulate what the robot would do. So it is actually using a human hand there to represent what a, the robot's hand. But I think what's especially interesting about this concept was that so we're using basically video and animation as a way to think through the full. Space of ideas and to see spatially what the consequences were. And what felt like it was a good idea with our magic window felt really complicated in the video. In other words, you got a lot of uh, precision, but specifying a path, right? Like that was just move the hand over here, pick up a block, and it, it would take you, even in our perfect example, on the order of a minute to minute and a half. I feel like that's, that's not fast enough. So yet another way to, as a thinking tool to be able to interact with this virtual world in 3Space is to use the three-dimensional elements of the world, but in a video representation. We're going to use the the real world to prototype the actual manipulator, the end effector side of the robot. And by that, I mean we're we're actually just going to ask a person's hands to play the role of the hand. So what's interesting is if you try to tell a person, like, pick that bottle that off the table, it, they'll, they'll do it pretty reliably, like right? most people. And so what you need to do is use sensory deprivation as a design tool to make it so that the robot person won't be so precise. And so what you see here is an example where we've given uh, one of the developers in my group, this uh, really thick work glove that makes it hard to sense that tactile when he's touching something. Uh, And we put this uh, obstruction in front of their face. So that way they're watching, in, in this particular example, the participant is watching the commands being done on this cardboard command center, and then trying to emulate it in a space that they can't see in a, uh, and to interact with objects that they feel less, so you can't feel. Um, and something like this would, again, allow you to really see all of the complexity, and this also made quite manifest the idea that working with a system to specify every angle of every joint to pick something up is probably gives you a lot of control, but is a lot of work. And so it really forced us. Oh, sorry, one other thing was, and you can see we found these uh, children's toys because they ended up forcing the, uh, the person to articulate something in a way that was, felt very unnatural to them. You know, pick a cup up. You know you're going to pick it up, but move that thing through a corkscrew is a very unusual set of motions for them to have to uh, enact. And so we tried to do every, as many things as we could to break their expectations of normalcy so that they didn't act with all the precision that they'd learned through their sensory motor system over the 20 years of life that our robot uh, puppet had. So um, anyway, i mentioned this, hyperspecifying hand locations take a long time. So we decided to elaborate a, um, a new version of the software and... One of the things that was really important about the work that we had been doing in that particular domain was to um, to really, because of having done all those different prototypes, we saved ourselves from building a very complicated system that was quite uh, tedious and decided that what we actually needed to do was rely a little bit more on robotics. And so here is a video of the updated concept for this particular uh, idea, and it was to actually um, have the robot identify the surfaces, and then to have basic interaction primitives. So one would be uh, grasp, one would be pull. Uh, I can't remember exactly all of them, but you'd say y- you basically use a simple sensor to identify this is a handle, and then tell, and then the, the, you would be able to express the idea that The end state was uh, that the drawer would be open and then just use inverse kinematics and and motion planning algorithms to actually solve it for you. So you have a little bit of uh, uh, expressivity and a little bit of specificity in the beginning and the end and then letting the robot do the work for you. And this actually turned out to be an enormously successful uh, event and it probably sped us up on the order of 30 times. And you end up getting that kind of uh, payback by... Uh, and I think here is here is the final uh, video that we made uh, which has a unique polish for our products. They're often quite a bit rougher. Uh, but the idea here was with this... Uh, and this is a Jayco medical prosthetic robot arm that we have in my lab. And just a connect depth sensor and a soft bridge uh, storage box. And the idea was how long can it how fast can we make it so that we could basically program the robot remotely? And so what we, what we see is the scene here that shows the 3D data, and you're basically calibrating the 3D model of the robot with those points in 3Space. And then you identify to the robot, these are the corners. This is, a, this is a plane. Do a turning motion on the plane. Send the action. And then the robot can quite easily solve a problem like that. And so what you really saw is that with something, with this particular type of interaction metaphor, an operator can actually stay ahead of, if not uh, even with, and maybe slightly ahead of, depending on the complexity of the action, what you actually need the robot to do. And so we have this idea, we had to build, actually this idea of uh, finally specifying multiple actions at once. The grasp, release, set down, lift up. Four primitives. Turns out that you can learn a lot um, with just having a person pantomime something uh, with paper and trying to integrate data and with working with the people who are the deep experts in their field and putting their data in front of them. Maybe what I'll do is uh, end it here and uh, just wrap up by saying, remember that you can get a lot further than you think with a lot less tech than you would think. The paths to get those, achieve those lessons are to determine the unknowns that are essential to the success of your project and to think of the cheapest proxies that you can for whatever those tasks are. My objective in today wasn't to suggest that when you're doing robot uh, manipulation that you should do this. But that whatever problem you're solving, that there is a way for you to simplify it so that you start to program when it's the just a little bit further into your design process than your instincts might tell you. And that that patience will repay you magnificently. Thanks very much.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at quteduau forward slash IFE we're also on twitter at ife underscore qt and also on instagram at ife.qt we really hope you enjoyed this ife podcast